Yeah, I feel like the way AC reads scripture, I don't even need to preach. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. Go home. Uh, good to see you all. My name is Jake, one of your pastors. Uh, happy Father's Day for the dads, and uh, happy Juneteenth as well, which is tomorrow, but needs a shout out. Uh, if you don't know what Juneteenth is, it is a federal holiday that's got a deep tradition within the black culture. So in June 19th, 1865, the last slaves in the Confederacy in Texas heard finally that freedom had been announced. To them, And so it celebrates that day. And uh, here's why it's important for Christians to, I think, really, really important for us to know. There is a deep embodied theology that was lived out by the African slaves within our country that connected to Jesus and being faithful to him in the midst of suffering. And so if you want a little something to do to celebrate Juneteenth, go and look up tomorrow on Spotify a list of African-American spiritual songs, and you can listen to some of the rich singing theology that came out of that time. One of my favorite ones is uh, you either got Go Down Moses is Really Good, um, so I would check out some of that, but listen to some of that music. It's something for you to do. So we're going to open up the Word of God. We're going to continue in 1 John today. And so to get our hearts ready, let's pray. Jesus, we always open the Word so that we could meet you, come clothed to us in Scripture. We want to see you, experience your presence in a way that would change us and make us more obedient to your mission and to your calling. And so we, we invite you right now to speak to us. Amen. So guys, I finished this series, this TV series last night, and it was like at the end of the series, it was like some of the last scenes of the show. I was like, oh man, there's like some quotable like speeches by the main character. And I was like, that's going in my sermon. Um, and so we, we, last night, me and Lexi finished a series we've been going through. It's the series Chernobyl. And uh, that doesn't always happen because here's the deal. Lexi really likes horror and true crime, and I really like sci-fi and anime, and they do not overlap, usually. Some of the last service was like, I got one for you. Um, but usually we don't watch shows that overlap together. But, you know, Chernobyl was like true documentary crime-ish, but also it's about the meltdown of the nuclear power plant in 1986, which if you don't know anything about nuclear energy, that stuff is like totally like sci-fi. So we were watching it, and in the beginning of the show is so crazy because you're watching, and you know, I'd give you a spoiler alert, but it happened in 1986. So you had 40 years. Uh, so the power plant is melting down in Chernobyl in Russia in 1986, and you're watching these characters act out their exchange. And in the beginning, it's crazy to see because, you know, the leadership within the structure of the power plant was so in this place of denial that when the nuclear reactor had blown up, they did not even react Instead, what the chain of command would say, they'd be like, tell me how the reactor could blow up. And the response they knew they had to give was, it's impossible. Russian reactors do not melt down. And so then it like continues on. But at the end, there's a scientist and he is, you know, they're given this uh, trial for like what finally happened. And a scientist is given his testimony. I'm going to try to say his name. Uh, but he stands up and the judge is a little bit annoyed at what he's saying, 
And so he tells the professor, if you mean to suggest the Soviet state is somehow responsible for what happened, then I must warn you, you are treading on dangerous ground. And so then the scientist stands up, and I was like, oh, this is so good. And he goes, I have already tread on dangerous ground. We are on dangerous ground right now because of our secrets and our lies. They are practically what define us. When the truth offends, we lie and lie until we can no longer remember it's even there. But it is still there. Every lie we tell incurs a debt to the truth. Sooner or later, that debt is paid. That is how an RBMK reactor core explodes, lies. And it was like, mic drop. And it was like super good end to the story. Uh, if you watch the story, you kind of can very easily, especially as Americans, it's like, it's like almost like a joke now of like a relationship to Russia and, and that time and period of history. But you can watch these men and you can think, how can anyone be in so much denial? Like, how could it get that bad that they just keep lying over and over and over again to one another that something as catastrophic as this could happen? And if anyone could just admit what was going on, that they would have been able to actually do something. How could anyone be that in denial? Uh, the reason that denial actually comes so easy to the human race is because truth, when it comes to denial or truth, denial is a lot easier. And truth is often more painful. The problem with denial is not a Russian problem. <laughs> it's not something unique to the 1980s. It is a human problem. Denial is something as we continue in the book of 1 John today, you're going to see what happens is John, the apostle of Jesus, draws a line in the sand and he says, in a sense, if there is denial in you, you are not a part of the family of God. And it's like stark contrast, kind of black and white type of statement. And so it needs some unpacking for us to talk about what that denial means and what he's actually talking about. And so the first kind of thing we're going to talk about in this category is he says in the first verse here, in verse 6, it says, if we say we have fellowship while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So walking in darkness is incompatible with the people of God. So last week we talked about God is light and God is love, and we're gonna zero in on the results of God is light. And so God's people can't walk in darkness. That doesn't make any sense. God is light. But here's the question. What does walking in darkness even mean? Like, what is that actually? That's not common language for us, but before we even get into it, I think we need to notice something really specific about this passage of Scripture. I talked about last week what was happening historically. People were leaving the church, and John is responding to them to encourage them and hold them, tell them to cling to the truth. But here, do you notice this? If you read through here, John uses us language, not them language. So he could just point out, hey, here's the people who have left. They don't belong. Here's all the reasons why you guys are good. Instead, he uses it as an opportunity to point the light on ourselves. 
This is a look in the mirror kind of passage. And so as you hear it, especially as we begin to talk about what it means to actually walk in darkness, you might be tempted to think about other ways you see people walking in darkness. That's not what John's doing. He says, us. You want to know how you belong to the people of God? If you don't walk in darkness. So what what does walking in darkness actually mean? Well, look in verse, check out verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He says it again in verse 10. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. So walking in darkness is the denial of sin. Last week I mentioned there was a religious group that had gotten tied up into the church called the Gnostic uh, religion. And the two things you need to know about the Gnostics back in the day in the ancient world is that they denied that the material was a good thing at all. And they believed that salvation was that you would find this inner enlightenment in your soul. And the reason that's important is as that gets tied up into Christianity is you had this group of people within the first church who would basically say, hey, the material's not really important. In fact, it's kind of a bad thing. And so if my body doesn't matter and material doesn't matter, then who's to say that sin really even matters? And so they would outright deny that sin was even a category for them. Now, I don't think that it's often that we within the church will outright deny that we sin at all. I think there are other ways that we walk in darkness. But before we even get into that, we need to actually define what does sin mean? Because within our culture, we have very different language for sin. How do Americans think about sin? So I usually during the school year, we'll spend a good amount of time on campus at Arizona State talking to college students. It's a big part of my ministry. And over the years, I have asked a question that I love asking people who aren't Christian just to see what they'd say. And it is, what do you think is wrong with the world? Because everybody's got an answer to that, no matter what they believe. And it is so revealing and so helpful. And so here's just some of the things of how people think is wrong with the world. Bigotry, ignorance, lack of education, fundamentalism, selfishness. And depending on what political leaning you have, you've got a whole list of sins that the other party is doing, right? And I I think in America, we have plenty of words to describe sin. However, it's all out there sin. And here's what I mean. Think about one of the most common language words that we all accept within culture for sin. It's the word trauma. I think that's actually a pretty helpful term, right? It's very helpful that there has been an arising awareness of trauma, but when you think about it, it reveals something about our world and our culture. We have clear language for sin that has been done to us, not sin that we've done. And so while we might not be like the first century Gnostics where we outright deny the presence of sin, especially within the church, more often, we just completely minimize or ignore the presence of sin within our lives. John is saying, if that is your MO, you can no longer say you have fellowship with the people of God. That is, to him, walking in the darkness. But John has a very different view of sin than our culture. 
He has the, you know, two-sided, I think two big influences is both his time growing up as a Jew, and so he's got deeply ingrained in his mind the story of Genesis 3, which you might know that story. It's a story of Adam and Eve and the temptation of the serpent in the garden, and they ate the fruit, and you've grown up maybe around those stories. If you have not, and that's a new story to you, here's all you need to really know. The Bible paints the picture of where evil came from as fundamentally a problem with who gets to decide what is good and what is evil. And the problem with our world to this day is that everybody in here, everybody out there, all has a flinch that they want to define what is good and what is evil for themselves. And the chaos and destruction we see in the world is because what happens if your definition is different than mine? Well, then it's just a question of who's stronger. And so he's got that in his mind, a very Jewish understanding of what is good and evil and the problem of sin. But also, you know, I talked about this last week. He spent his his life with Jesus. And so he's influenced by how Jesus talked about sin. And Jesus's reasoning in how he talked about the law gives a lot about what we understand about sin. In Matthew 22, Jesus was asked, What's the greatest commandment? You know, like, what do we got to follow? And Jesus responds and says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. If you want to know what a biblical definition of what sin is, it's any time you disobey the commandment. Love God with every bit of your life and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything gets put into that umbrella. That's why Jesus, when he starts teaching about all the specifics, you know, he talks about, hey, you've heard it said, don't murder. If you have anger in your heart, you're guilty of the same thing. Because that's not love. Anything that is outside of love for God and our neighbor is sin. Kind of scarily, it's not even a word, scarily, Uh, frightening is that makes the scope of sin way more broad than you and I are actually comfortable with at all. So if that is what is sin, then how are we in denial of it? Because I have yet to hear any of you within our church or really even anybody outside of the church say, hey, I'm perfect. I have no sin. Never heard that once in my life. So how are we in denial of it? I think the main ways that we deny sin today is we deny sin by minimizing it. If I was in that room with those other Russians, I would have have spoken up. I would have done something to stop the nuclear meltdown. Sin doesn't even work that way. We think about the big sins that come out and get revealed within our culture, right? The scandals or the things that we hear about within even our circles and our, like the big, sad, like, oh my gosh, this, I can't believe this could happen. And every time we think about sins that offend us or get our attention, we think about the worst extreme of sin, but that's not how sin works. James talks about it this way. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it's conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, gives birth to death. So we might be like, it is a tragedy, the fatherlessness within our country. 
but will ignore and minimize the ways that we are not present with our own children as dads, either because of our idolatry of work, entertainment, or comfort. Sin starts always in the small ways and wants to grow to kill you. And so walking in darkness is not just you have some deep, dark secret that everyone would be like, it is all the way down to the core of every bit and posture that your heart says, I define good and evil for myself and refuses to love God or neighbor. So I think the first way is we minimize our sin. But the other way that I think commonly happens is I think we deny our sin by pointing the light onto the sin of others rather than ourselves. And so I've even heard a lot of times in the last like five years too, where Christians will, uh, they'll speak very clearly and boldly about the sins they see within the world, within the culture or within outside or inside the church. And they'll, they'll say it in a way where like, hey, I'm speaking with a prophetic voice but we'll entirely forget the words of Isaiah when he began his ministry as a prophet. This is how he started it. He said, woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So we, we, we deny sin not by saying, hey, I'm perfect, I don't have sin. We deny it because we either minimize it or we are so well-skilled in pointing out the sins of others that we, like if we were to have a moment of confession, we don't even know where to begin with our own internal sin. What happens when you deny sin? The best way I can talk about that is with an illustration from when I was in high school. And when I was in high school, I was on the wrestling team. And uh, two, you know, probably something everybody knows about wrestling is they wear the funny singlets that look silly. The second thing about it, maybe you know, maybe you don't, uh, is that wrestlers are really prone to like skin diseases. And so you've got like ringworm and stuff like that. So when I was in high school, uh, I got a skin disease called impetigo. And it is a bacterial infection that goes into your skin. And I didn't really know I had it, right? I knew it was a problem. It looked gross. It was all over my arm. It started off small. So I did obviously the thing that I would have thought would have been made sense. And I covered up the, the, these like lesions on my arm with a bandage. And, you know, I, I would, every like day or so, I'd peel back the bandage and I would look at it and I'd be like, because what I didn't know about impetigo is that if you cover it up, it will spread. It actually would grow into the bandage and back into your skin, and then it would like start showing up all over your body. The only way to get rid of impetigo is you have to rip off the bandage, expose it to the light and the air, and then find some kind of healing ointment. So what happens when we deny sin? John tells us in verse eight, he says, if we say we have no sin, here's the first way, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And the first way is self-deception. If we say we do not have sin, either by the ways that I named it or anything else, we are functionally like I when I covered up that bandage and then I just pretended like it wasn't there. The result is it's going to get worse. And eventually, sin always wants to kill you. That's the goal of sin. And so what happens when we deny sin is we deceive ourselves and 
The sad part about it too, especially when it comes to the Christian faith, is John says in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. In effect, when we deny sin, we deny there was even a need for a savior. Even in small ways. To deny the presence of sin within our lives to walk in the darkness, to either ignore it, minimize it, not take it seriously, is in function to live as if you don't need Jesus's death daily. And that is the only posture, John says, is appropriate to a Christian, period. And this is something that I get tangled up in my own walk of faith all the time, in that as I get further along in my faith, it, gets, it often gets harder for me to confess sin. And the reason often it is for me personally is I have this internal monologue that says, you should have been past this already. Really, Jake, you're still dealing with this sin? Or, you know, if it was to be brought out into the light, in my head, I'm like, man, Jake, you're a pastor. Can't believe you're doing Yet what John's talking about here is that this is a part of being in the family of God is an honesty, not walking in darkness, but to walk in the light. And so we are not to call God a, a liar. Part of the core of our faith is to recognize that there's a problem in the world. It is sin, and every single one of us has it. And so that is why often he says in verse six, he starts off saying, you know, if we say we have fellowship with him by walking in the darkness, we lie. So that's the other thing about denying sin. It gets in the way of any real fellowship. Because what happens if we are in a community and we're not honest about our sin? You rank each other, even in your own mind, about who is doing good and who is not. And that eliminates any chance of fellowship with each other and with God. Rather than the posture that John is gonna take from this point out. So why do we deny sin in ourselves? Because ripping the bandage off is actually pretty painful. That's, I mean, that's why I didn't, wanna, I didn't wanna pull off the bandage of the skin lesions. I mean, there's a couple of things. One, it would've hurt to pull it off. Two, the moment I pull off the bandage, all of you around looking at me can see, oh, Jake has a skin disease. Gross. And that is a shameful experience, and it's the exact experience that we all have internally in our mind when we think about what it might mean to walk in the light. And so walking in the darkness is more comfortable. We count in our minds the cost of what it would mean to walk in the light is a lot more costly than just sticking around in the darkness. It's painful because I think even at the core of it is we don't believe that we could be fully seen and loved. Not by each other, not by God. And that's why we stick to the darkness. So if walking in the darkness is denial, how do we walk in the light, as he just said? In first John. He says in first seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. I mean, we all want that. So what does walking in the light even mean? We know we don't want to walk in darkness. 
We want to walk in the What does walking in the light actually mean? Because if God is light, yes, we are to walk in the light. Walking in the light is this. It's confessing our sin. Look in verse 9. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. That's the remedy. Not denying our sin, but an honest, humble, vulnerable posture of coming to God and saying, I missed. I need help. The way Jesus describes it uh, in the Gospels, he tells a story where two men go into the temple. I guarantee John has this like story in his mind deeply. Two men go into the temple, Jesus says, and one of them is a, we'll say a pastor. And the pastor is up front and he goes, I'm so glad that I'm holy and that I do not sin. And then he looks to the right and he sees someone who would be like the modern equivalent of like a drug dealer. And he looks at the drug dealer and he goes, I'm so glad I'm not like the drug dealer. Thanks God. And then he leaves. Jesus says there's another guy, right? That guy who drops to his knees, won't even look up to heaven, beats his chest, and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is what Jesus says. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Walking in the light is confessing. It's a honesty with God that we're in need of mercy. It's ripping off the bandage and saying, there is something in me that will kill me if I don't get help. So what does that look like? The first way it looks like is confessing our sins to God in prayer. It means when we speak to God, we give him full access of what's going on in our heart and we are brutally honest with him about where we are. We confess our sins. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. And if you look at the Lord's prayer, if you're doing it every day, every day you're confessing sin. The second way is that we confess our sins to one another. James, the book of James says this, in James 5, 16, says that we are to confess our sins to one another, and then the way he tells us to respond is to pray for healing for that person. And so it is just expected within the early church that we are to confess our sins to God and to one another. Now, especially when we talk about confessing our sins to each other, that's the part where internally we all have a sin where we're like, I do not want to tell that to other people. Whether it be just the brutal honesty about where our heart's intentions are or fill in the blank. But, but hear me, this is one of the most attractive things about Christianity that I've ever seen. You guys know I grew up around the church, but I, I walked away from the faith. I wasn't like into this. And I showed up at this church at the time where I was like, okay, my life's a mess and I made a deal with God. I'll go to church, I'll do the Christian thing if you fix my life. And I feel like God with that prayer was like, good enough, we'll work from there. <laughs> so I showed up here at this church and I loved the preaching, was all into it. And then someone said, you should go to a community group. It was called something else at the time, called RCs now. And so I didn't even email anybody. I, at that time, I don't know why we had this, but we had like just addresses like, on one of the, I found out where this RC was. I showed up to the house and I just walked into the front door and I was like, I'm here. Um, and they're like, who are you? And I was like, well, someone preaching said to come. And 
And I, and I, you know, I don't know what's going on at all. I mean, they're all like making tea and talking to each other. And I'm like, okay, Christians like tea. And, and they talk about the Bible and it was like, all right, this is cool. Here's the part that blew me away. We get done and they go, who, who wants prayer? And for the next 30 minutes, I'm kid you not, these Christians start confessing their sin to one another, like sins that I was ashamed of. And I heard them, and then I would, I would hear them confess a sin, and I'd be like, oh. <laughs> and here's how the other Christians in the room would respond. Thank you so much for being honest. There's no sin uncommon to man. We love you. God forgives you. Let's lay hands on you and pray for you. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. I had never seen anything like that in my life, guys. That's just a side note on like when we live like Jesus tells us to live, it's, a, it's attractive to the outside world on its own. But here's the deal. If we're gonna have that kind of brutal honesty within the family, you have to believe there is something on the other side of, conf- on the other side of confession that's better than the pain of walking into the light. Let's not pretend that walking into the light isn't shocking and painful. It is. We have to believe there's something better on the other side. What is it? That's why John says to them, if we walk in the light in verse seven, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. In verse nine, he says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us. And in verse one of chapter two, it says, anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. What's on the other side? If you think about denial, denial is like a dam that we erect at the site of a river flowing to block up the flow of God's mercy and grace. When we confess our sins, it's not as if Jesus goes, oh, thanks for, thanks for confessing. I gotta jump on the cross. I gotta die again. It has already happened. God's mercy, God's forgiveness, the blood of Jesus is already there. It's already waiting. God's response to us in confession is never anything other than faithfulness and forgiveness. That's why John says he is faithful and just. It's as if God would not be just if he did not forgive. And so we confess our sins to one another, knowing full well that there is forgiveness on the other side in the blood of Jesus. We have to have that so fixed within our minds that we really do believe the moment I confess, it's like the bomb that blows up the dam. And the only thing that's flown out of that is the love and mercy of Jesus Christ. If we have that as the people of God, imagine what that would do to us. I talked about last week how all of the stuff in 1 John is this book, I believe is informed by John's experiences with Jesus. I talked about how he watched his best friend die on the cross. There's a moment when Jesus is dying on the cross that defines forgiveness in a way that blows my mind even till, till this day. It's in the Gospel of Luke. It says, One of the criminals who were there hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So, if you didn't know this, Jesus is dying on the cross. He's not alone. There's some other criminals who are there hanging at the same time. They're all dying together. And as everybody's mocking Jesus, 
spitting on him, making jokes out of him, saying, you're the king, crawl down there. There is one person who is dying next to Jesus who turns to Jesus. And you know what he says? This is what he says. He rebukes the other man and says, do you not fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and if we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Perfect example of confession. Look at the cross and realize I was supposed to be up there. For every heart attitude, every tiny sin to the big ones that you're scared of exposing, when you look at Jesus on the cross, that's where you and I belong. So he says this, and this is what happens next. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is what Jesus does. He looks at the man and he says to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Here's what blows me away about that. Jesus does not say, I'm gonna do a miracle so you can get off the ground and then I want you to go live a life for me. He doesn't say, I need to know all the specifics. And like, he just looks at the man and says, you're gonna be with me in paradise today. What do you see in that? A God whose heart is so ready to forgive that the tiniest inkling of confession, he's ready to dole out grace. Forgiveness, mercy, advocacy. That's what we get on the other side of the flood. So, I, I want us to be like this. I mean, imagine what it would be like if 50 years from now in Tempe, we were known as the people where, you know, let's just imagine that America gets more, less and less like excited about Christians. I don't know what's gonna happen. Let's just say that happens, right? And 50 years from now, there are people in the city of Tempe and they go, man, they believe some weird stuff. But you, have you ever been there? Because... The moment you go in there, if you like can start hanging out with them, they're like constantly talking about confessing their sin in the most honest, vulnerable way I've ever heard. Here's the crazy thing. Every time they do, everyone surrounds them, loves them, prays for them, and they weep together, and then they worship God. It's the craziest thing. You would never... You imagine the healing that, that would do from all the people who have suffered even harm from the church over the years? So... There it is. Walk in darkness, walk in light. God's people only walk in light. And it looks like confession. But rather than just talk about it, I want to give us a chance to do it. <clears throat> so turn to your neighbor and tell him the darkest sin that you have. <laughs> uh, I, actually, I actually do want to make space for this. So here's, here's what we're actually going to do. We're not going to do that. I, uh, I'm, I'm just gonna invite Brandon, wherever you are, Brandon, you can head up now. Um, we're gonna, I'm gonna throw a passage of scripture on the screen. Juan, you can throw up the Matthew 22 part. So I told you, you know, sin is hold your life, your heart, anything up to the greatest commandment of Jesus, where love God with everything, love your neighbor as yourselves. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'm just gonna give you guys a couple of minutes of just being with God quietly. We're just gonna sit here. I'm gonna sit down and I want you to ask God, reveal to me where I have sinned. The moment he does, just be honest with him. 
Just be honest with him. Confess your sins to the Lord. I promise you on the other side is forgiveness and mercy and grace. And so we're just gonna take a moment of quiet. If you want, you can close your eyes. Brandon's gonna play some music and we'll just sit here for a little bit. So here's the second invitation for the rest of the day. As we sing and as there's prayer, uh, if you want, confess your sins to one another. If someone confesses their sin to you, here's your response. Pray over them for healing and remind them of the forgiveness that is given to them in Christ Jesus. There's no other appropriate response. And so anytime that there's music going, if you want, you can come up for prayer. That's a good spot for it, or you can grab somebody you're sitting with, or you can head outside, whatever you need to do. But that's often been one of the times I've felt the presence of God the closest is just confessing my sin to brothers and sisters in Christ. And lastly, we're gonna take communion together. And so when you come up here, and when you take the bread and you take the wine, as I talked about uh, before, this is a, testimony that we believe that Jesus' body given on the cross, his blood shed is our forgiveness that we need. So this is the reminder literally of what today we talked about, that it is already afforded and given to you. And so when you take, just receive that. If you are here and you're not a Christian, you've never confessed your sins before, today would be a great day. And I say that just as an invitation from God. And I promise you that what you're gonna receive on the other end of Jesus is forgiveness and mercy. And so if you want, you can come up to the front, I'll hang around and we'll pray with you. Lastly, um, Jesus told his disciples in John, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. Gave his authority to the apostles. So here's the deal. If you confessed your sins to God just now, I can confidently say you're forgiven. You are forgiven today by the blood of Jesus. 
Let's pray. No one's like you, Jesus, in your mercy and your love for us. And so just make that real to us today. If there's any still in this room who are just holding back confession because it feels terrifying, would you give them the light of your grace and mercy that they might confess their sins to you and be forgiven? We love you, Lord. It's in your name we pray.